Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan. The history of slavery in America has been written about and is still debated to this day. A novel on our press by P.J. Piccarello, The Indigo Scarf, is a story of slaves, a search for freedom, and a look into the unique characters that tell a tale that is as fascinating as it is at times tragic. An award-winning writer, he is also the author of the novel Heartwood, a host of author residencies, and he does programs for the Pennsylvania Humanities Council. P.J. Piccarello joins us today. Welcome to the show. P.J., welcome to the show. Thanks, Tori. It's nice to be here. Well, let us begin with uh, the start of our tale. It's in 1882, and there's this chance meeting between the last son of one of our protagonists, Benjamin James, and the daughter of one David Sharp. Was This was really interesting, this lady and this, this old gentleman just suddenly meeting up, realizing they know each other to an extent. Um, was that the beginning sort of to set the table for what would come? I was very intrigued by it. Yeah, in writing fiction, I'm really interested in structure, and uh, mm-hmm. I knew the, the core tale. It had come it had come to me through a lot of research and deliberation over a long period of time, but how I was going to relate it uh, was troublesome, and um, I like layered narratives, so uh, uh, it occurred to me that the, this was a multi-generational story, and um, that the 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 ending really isn't... Um, apparent until we see what happens um, generations later. So I, I came up with the idea of layering the narrative where somebody um, who's uh, distant in time and place from the core of the story in the, in the wilds of northern Pennsylvania and pioneer times encounters somebody uh, from that area, area and, um, and, relate, and that person relates the story to them. And, uh, you know, authors will talk a lot about needing distance and um, because it opens, opens your mind and creativity to a lot of things. And so creating distance between the characters and the story that was being told um, really helped the story thematically so we could see some of the impact of what happened. So, uh, yes, the chance, the chance meeting in a railroad station and then um, the, the storyteller, as I'll call Benjamin, um, deciding to board the train with our narrator, Anna Maria, uh, sets up this uh, narrative structure where he's going to tell her the story of her past. And um, it gave me an opportunity to kind of reflect on what she thinks about the world they're headed back to and how that changes because they're going back to this place where all this tragedy had occurred and that she had tried to escape. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing 
in terms of your structure or your style was your ability to put us right in the picture. You had the description, because 1882, as you noted, just in the wake of the assassination of President Garfield, um, the uh, even with the Emancipation Proclamation long in place, it's very clear from the tale that racism and prejudice are, are still really strong. Um, what was the lot of the black American in the U.S. at this time, even in the northern states? I mean, you seem to have a, a, a handle on that. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I like to say that I have a handle on that because I, I felt a responsibility to do a lot of research, and um, was exposed to some people uh, who gave me a lot of insights into that experience. Um, you know, obviously, I don't live in 1882, nor do I live in 1803. I'm not African American, so I thought I had to do my due diligence to understand that time and place, and then as best as I could that world and. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did an enormous amount of research, and there were, if uh, in the 1882, which is where we're at as the story is being related, but we're looking back to the late 1700s and early 1800s, and there's a lot of irony in the world that these people were in in 1882, as you say, the racism, what have you, where they have to sit on a train, um, whether they're even allowed on a dining car as they proceed. Um, and, and a lot of that irony is there, and I think is kind of playing off of the story that's being told when supposedly slavery was legal and we had, uh, and it was prior to emancipation. They're hearing a story of being related, the stories being related to those days, and yet, how much has the world really changed? I guess it kind of asks that question. Yes, definitely does. And the story actually begins, I guess, in 1799 in Virginia, and you introduce us to our our the real protagonist who drives much of the story, Jedediah. Tell us about this man. Um, I uh, I am frank that the story is based on the true stories, based loosely on the true stories of two escaped slaves and um, okay. who um, who settled in the wilds of northern Pennsylvania. And that's what, uh, when I when I discovered this, um, uh, and and I had been I'd been researching another work, and I discovered this, and I was just immediately fascinated because um, uh, I had not known that that history existed along the west branch of the Susquehanna River. And um, I I started to trace what I could, and when I found out that these people had settled there in the early 1800s, I didn't think I would discover much actual history, recorded history. And the more I went... The, the more I realized that there, I could put pieces together, uh, and there was a lot to be discovered about these people. And um, so, the, the 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 two escaped slaves had escaped there with white wives, which in itself was fascinating. And you know, writers are always looking for the unique or the different. And I was immediately drawn in, and I saw these people immediately as heroes. Um, mm-hmm. What what must have they uh, endured? And why did they go there? And and then I discovered that many of their descendants were around. And, you know, to me, these people were um, very admirable um, because they were the true, true pioneers of our area and um, had had a story that had never really been told, if I'm answering your question. Well, I think I think it does. I was I was wondering of, of how this fellow was selected as main character. And I am. I'm fascinated right now that 
this is based on something that really happened. And yes, that was the other thing was, um, I'm going to jump ahead in my own questions, but uh, yes, uh, was it unusual in and of itself? Like, as you say, these two escaped slaves took white women as wives and that they went with them. Do we have, I, I, I'm going to admit that my part of understanding of American history at this point kind of goes a little faded. Was it unusual in and of itself? That's a yes and no answer. It was um, because of the racism of the era, um, and which would, which was, as, I, as I'm sure we all know, was very vile. Um, it was, mm. it was inhumane, and um, so mixed marriages were looked down upon. Mm-hmm. However, what I've discovered, and um, I find this fascinating and encouraging in a lot of ways about humanity and people, is that in in more rural areas, um, where people really had to, maybe in some cases, by necessity, look at people as what they are, as people, irrespective mm-hmm. of race. Um, you know, relationships were more accepted uh, in, in uh, mixed, mixed racial relationships were more accepted. And so, it, you know, it would depend upon where you were. At this time, there were black codes. Um, you know, we're, we're well ahead of emancipation. We're well ahead of the Civil War. And in mm-hmm. many communities, there were black codes. So black people may not, may not even be able to consort with, with white people, much less marry them. Uh, but yet, in, in pioneer regions, you know, there was a law of its own, and there were social mores, and people were accepted. And I think, um, and in some cases, um, unlike maybe other parts of the country, were able to endure and, and thrive in some ways. Although I think the rampant racism did catch up, and, and I've uncovered a lot of that historically as to what happened to these people. Well, leading right into it, uh, you give us a good idea of life on a plantation. You get the perspective of Jedediah, but also Judah, one of the housewomen. And, I mean, they do have a relationship, but again and again it comes around to slaves didn't really have the option to get married apart from the the ceremony that Madagascar Jack conducts for them, the broom jumping, that's a that harkens back to sort of my pagan research. There's something similar there, but slaves didn't always have an option to stay together, now did they? They did not. It was at the discretion of the owner. So what what may be considered a, a marriage for slaves, uh, at least in my research of that part of Virginia, you know, state by state things would be different, uh, but because uh, if you were a slave, you were considered property, so therefore you did not enjoy any rights. So it's only at the discretion of the master could you marry, but what master gave the master could take away. So um, obviously, you know, it's sad to say, but um, for economic reasons, uh, they wanted to encourage relationships and, um, um, you know, and not have to resort to, um, you know, to, 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 Reading, so to speak, which would be such a shame. So, so, so the, it was encouraged to some extent, but it was also used as a matter of discipline and who could have what relationships. So, um, mm. so yes, there is a there is a there is a wedding scene, and to me, it's a very poignant wedding scene that's pivotal to what happens in the story. And that, um, of course, is is a clandestine clandestine thing because of the circumstances of what you read in that first chapter, which ultimately mm. affects Jedediah for the rest of his life. It certainly does. Now, um, interesting, too, 
the names of the characters and the way people spoke to one another. Um, I'm interested, I mean, like the, the research and also the background work that helped you pick these names. And also there's the method of speech. The Quakers spoke in a very different way. And um, I found that really fascinating as well. I appreciate you saying that. You know, it was, a, it was a deliberate decision on my part whether or not to use dialect. You know, that, you know, amongst creative circles, there is a lot of discussions whether or not we we should or should be using dialect anymore. And I chose to. I believe that um, um, so long as uh, you are uh, writing in respect of your characters, that uh, dialect is mm-hmm. is part of setting, and it's important in characterizing, and it's also true to that era. And, um, mm-hmm. and I'm a big researcher. I could talk all day about my process in researching historical research and um i really enjoy doing it but for the uh the dialect the 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 southern um plantation or farm dialect that i used um i wanted authenticity and so what i did is i listened to tapes from the uh from the wpa uh when Mm -hmm. in the i believe the 20s uh maybe into the 30s they um said you know People who who have some recollection of slavery are dying off, and we need to go and speak mm-hmm. to them. And so these were elderly yeah. people. Um, you know, they were they, they they were only children on a plantation, but they recorded them, and I was able to listen to them in their dialect. And frankly, you hear a lot of wisdom in their voices. They're fascinating to listen to. So that's how I um, I tried to emulate that that dialect. And then uh, for the Quakers. Um, Really, that was you know, written word. I had to research um, th- their manner of speaking and um, and always trying to be respectful. Mm-hmm. And there's also um, the next step here would be um, bringing in George Sharp and taking us into you, you take us back in time into his youth. Where did George come from? Because he came from a different world, didn't he? He did. Uh, you know, so I, I learned a lot of interesting things uh, when I became engrossed in the subject. And um, one is that Pennsylvania was a slave state, uh, and slaves re- people remained enslaved here well into the 1800s under what was considered um, gradual abolition or gradual emancipation, uh, which mm-hmm. is a subject in itself. Um, and uh, New Jersey, interestingly, was, you know, I, I don't know how else to put it other than to say it was a wicked slave state at one time. Um, it had it was notorious for um, for its harsh harshness in in treating slaves, and, um, and you know we don't think along those terms. And in this part of Pennsylvania, North Central Pennsylvania, there was a large number of immigrants from New Jersey. And in my mm-hmm. in my I suspect it's geographical as to why that happened, even though we're quite a ways west of there. And I could, that's a, that's another subject. And um, so I knew these, these people were based on true stories. I knew that, that uh, the inspiration for George did come from New Jersey, and I also knew that he, um, historically, um, and I can prove that, that he was a gristmiller. And so um, I worked my way back to where he came from, and then, uh, then there, you know, there's an imagined background of him coming from a gristmill and I'm pretty sure he probably did, the inspiration for that character did come from a grist mill in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, mm-hmm. which entailed a lot of research into uh, milling, of course. Mm-hmm. And yes, George is just such a unique character, too, because it's like when he and Jedediah meet, 
they sort of don't speak the same language or do they? It's kind of, it's an odd sort of, it was a kind of an odd sort of, it was like that sort of awkward first meeting where you don't know, you don't know this other guy kind of thing. It was, well, that was a, that was a favorite scene of mine. Um, the, the dynamic between George and Jedediah was um, very interesting to me and very important to me in writing that book. Um, yeah. uh, I, uh, I I work with foils a lot, opposing characters. You know, sometimes maybe we understand things better through their opposites or some sort of comparison. And um, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, Tori, I don't consider myself that good of a writer. I feel that I need to have every crutch I can get. So I, you know, I try to learn everything I can about the art. And a lot of times I will incorporate another character because I want to make sure that um, that none of my own biases are, are coming through in the work um, mm-hmm. or that I'm not open-minded enough about in what, I, when I learn, what I learn about a character uh, or portray about a character. And um, so, so Jedediah, I... Because of what happened in that in the early chapters on that slave plantation, that affected his motivation, and that's what carried the story to me. It was his motivation, and he was struggling with something that was the kind of the theme that was always in the back of my mind. Um, and it was there were horrendous circumstances that led him to do and do what he did. But I, I still think there's always personal accountability. So I needed that other character who also was struggling with some of the same um, challenges when it comes to the idea of freedom and independence. And um, I wanted to see how he um, came to terms with that in a way different from my focal character. Uh, And so they worked very well against each other. And, of course, you see that dynamic a lot. Um, I think George is trying to save Jedediah through the story. Mm Mm-hmm. And it does seem it seems that way. He seemed to have more of a. It's it it is interesting. I actually I think I don't know if it's so much of a crutch. It, it is apparent. It it really just comes out in your writing style. Based on I mean I've only read one book of yours, but there I see it. Um, it's kind of like uh, George sort of is the he's almost like he's almost like the conscience. A little bit of Jedediah, sort of leaning on him just a little bit, not trying to judge him, but saying, "Hey, you know, think about this." And uh, I've always found that I, I, I felt like he was trying to, you know, like, yeah, maybe not so much, yeah, a savior or maybe like the big brother kind of thing. Yeah, I, I actually like that term best. That conscience, I would say, he was, he was, he was a conscience for Jedediah as well. He was a conscience for me as a writer. He was that mm. that. Um, that sounding board. He was that, you know, to test any assumptions I had, um, to imagine um, how a person would react to the circumstances they had in a world that I can only, I can only, you know, recreate in my mind and try to experience um, virtuously, virtually, I should say. Right. Well, isn't that an interesting thing too? Is one of the things you you created was you created these different characters and you brought them in from their different ways of life uh, because you seem uh, the Farley and the Whaler families, for example, they came from different places, they came from different means, and yet they they their attitudes stood out, their own prejudices, their own thoughts on and their own motivation of what do I want or what am, what am I what am I doing this for kind of thing. So you sculpted them out pretty well, I would say. 
Well, I appreciate that. I, I think, you know, uh, not to let uh, not to let too much out, but I would say that the idea of what is freedom um, and how the people under these circumstances would grapple with that is what was always working in the back of my mind. I'd say, you know, writers mm-hmm. often start with an idea that fascinates them. And, uh, you know, writers take things to an extreme. So if I'm going to test what is freedom, I'd like to take uh, – to create a scenario where I have somebody who um, would be the least free uh, in the circumstances I can give them. And, you know, again, going back to the George and Jedediah thing, George is faced with you know, probably just about the same circumstances. And we feel, I think, that George can achieve a certain freedom – no matter what these antagonists and villains in this story will do. And yet Jedediah is in some ways trapped by maybe, maybe some of his own doing, or we can question the circumstances of his life and compare the two. Mm-hmm. Well, there certainly was that, and, and I, that's something I wanted to ask about it, because as, as Jedediah ages, we see that he is, I think you're right, it's, he does seem trapped by his past. He seems trapped by what goes beyond him. The thing that was interesting, I wanted to get to this question too, and I, in terms of the Quakers, they, you see some of them really trying to help blacks gain a certain level of freedom or maybe even emancipation without the document. Uh, I believe the Quakers, first of all, were long known as pacifists. Were they engaged in helping slaves escape to freedom? Was there a significant role for them? There was, and I'm glad you brought that up. It's an interesting thing about the story that um, you may have noticed that was very important um, in, in how I considered that piece of history from the perspective of the helper and the helped, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, there are writers today that are kind of getting it for, um, you know, there's modern sensitivities um, about the way we talk about uh, people who've been persecuted. And um, mm-hmm. there's writers maybe kind of getting getting in trouble for uh, um, saying that uh, people who faced persecution in the past may have uh, endured because they were saved or helped. And, um, mm-hmm. and I was very careful of that because it was most important for me to maintain the dignity of my main characters because I think they were very dignified, and again, they were heroic to me. And, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the Quakers were actively engaged, um, clandestine most often from my research, in trying to help uh, black people, uh, particularly in this rural area. You know, a lot of that's off the charts, which is really what fascinated me even that much more because we don't know as much as what went on there, but much of it did. And I think they did it in a dignified way. They, were, they, they, they wanted to facilitate more than um, flat-out help to some extent. And, um, and I was very careful if you saw there were, some, there were some moments in the story where this would come up. And, um, and one of the more interesting characters in my mind uh, was Casper Roan, um, yes. who was actively engaged in trying to help them. But you saw with his interaction with George that it was only by their – um, he would only do so if they asked for it, let's say, so to speak. And mm, yes. um, and so, so, yeah, that was in the background, but certainly I wanted it to be the, the moral choice of the characters um, in, in that if they were faced with 
whatever kind of persecution, they they needed to be the ones to make that happen. You know, we we teach in creative writing, make sure the character's making the story happen, that the story's not happening to the character, if yes. I'm answering your question. You do, you do. Um, in this also, you are talking about a moment ago about Pennsylvania. It's part in history. I mean, you give a lot of detail about the rivers, um, this area of the state. We talk about Williamsport quite a bit, and... Um, a lot of that was very much unexplored territory or even unincorporated territory at the time that we're speaking. It's still like a new world kind of thing. Absolutely. I'm glad you point that out. I'm glad you saw it. It's a fascinating part of the world. To this day, it's a forbidding place. And it has been historically, as far as I can tell, and even prehistorically, a, um, a, forbidding, a forbidden place. Uh, it's always been a howling wilderness. It remains so as much as you can have a howling, howling wilderness in, you know, in, in the Northeast right now, um, in Pennsylvania, let's say. And I think a lot of that is because of the geography, which is what makes it forbidding and also so attractive to people like myself, so attractive to a pioneer who has to, you know, who is black with, in an interracial relationship um, and has people after him. Um, and it is inviting to those people and at the same time forbidding in a, in a very, very difficult place to live. To this day, it's, it's still that in relative terms. And what I hope to convey in there is that even though we're in the Northeast, um, you know, in the early 1800s, yeah, there was a lot of westward expansion and, and the Northeast was relatively settled. But here's this pocket of land that had only really been bought from the Indians you know, 20 years earlier, it had been purchased from Indians. It was largely unsettled. Even the Indians, it was mostly traveled through, um, not not lived upon, and it mm-hmm. um, it was a it was this howling wilderness, and um, there was a lot of thematic um, meaning in that. It's a place near and dear to me, anyway. And what I really tried to do was, um, writers would try to use setting. And and going back to Anna Maria, who's traveling back to this country from Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., a a, a black woman who is actually a speechwriter, ironically, based on history, by the way, for uh, for politicians. Um, And as she's she's traveling northward along the Susquehanna um, toward this forbidding place with this – uh, ancestor of hers, her, her, as we as we learn later, and an uncle, um, telling her this story. There's a question of it: Is this really a godless place that I've shunned and wanted to leave? And I and I hope the reader sees that her perception as she learns the truth of the world she came from begins to change, and the idea she grapples with of whether or not this is a godless, uh, forbidden, forbidding land changes. As her epiphany happens, you know, writers will do that to try to relate the mm-hmm. interstate with what they see going on in the in the outer world, and and then of course, it, you know, not to spoil, I won't spoil, but in the end, uh, the epiphany shows in, in a major decision she makes. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing too is, as we look at that, there's, um, I mean, you, you talked about some of the research you did. I mean, uh, I always was fascinated by old maps and uh, documents of that sort, even if I couldn't completely read them as a kid. And um, that some of your research material must have shown a very different looking Pennsylvania. I mean, if you land in it, you're seeing the wild place, but on the on on paper, it must look so incredibly different. 
Absolutely. I, I rely I rely a lot on maps. Maps are very very telling for what they for what they show you and what they don't show you. And yeah. um, you know you, you'll notice that as these few people are populating that valley in pioneer times, uh, they talk about the unmapped country, and and that is truly what it was. And when you see places that you know the rest of the you know, everything to the Mississippi in our country is pretty well mapped, and you've got this big empty spot in the middle of Pennsylvania that tells you something. Um, mm-hmm. But then when you find a journal entry or um, uh, some some sort of historical reference to that area, it becomes a real gem, and, um, and it opens your eyes to, to what was there. And, you know, you, you often wonder, what what don't we know about what happened in that country? That's true. That's very true. Well, it's an interesting thing is that uh, some of the work, like uh, the lumber work, I mean, that was a pretty obvious thing. There was certainly plenty of uh, plenty of timber, and uh, that was certainly wanted. Also, the whiskey making that uh, Jedediah veered into, those were pretty normal enterprises for that period of time. I'd, uh, they would have to have been. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I read often that, you know, most every farmer had a still. Um, mm-hmm. and it was uh it was common to make whiskey uh wasn't you know this is before what we would consider uh bootlegging let's say because there was no need for mm-hmm. that uh, it wasn't um eventually the taxation and the other issues uh caught on and that and that's that has a lot of ebb and tide but when you're up into that country you know nobody thought twice about it uh, most any um historical reference you look at talks about the the distillers um the one of the um one of the most common um, uh, books read about that area is um, is uh, about uh, on the frontier with Colonel Antis, and he mm-hmm. re- kind of recounts every farm up and down that valley in that era. The very few of them were. Uh, you're getting closer to Williamsport in his in his writing, but you know he talks about what they distilled and you know what their what their product of choice was. It was it was very common. Um, it becomes a vice. Oftentimes, as, as it would now, as it does in the story, as we see. And we see uh, the the overuse of it. And uh, there's the other thing too. Um, one of the characters, Thomas Tillman, pretty clearly, uh, because there's issues over land, how land is improved, what do you do with it. It looks like Tillman is pretty much involved in a land grab. I would say. He is, and uh, I. I, I really hope the book takes off in Williamsport. I've been uh, trying trying to get uh, to do as much promotion there as I can because I think people in that valley will be really interested um, to see uh, a fictional account based on a lot of that history that played a big role in shaping that 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 world. And so Samuel Wallace was the land king of the valley, mm-hmm. and um, and Tillman is obviously fictionalized. But after um, Samuel Wallace. Uh, passes on, Tillman aspires to be the next land king, and, and Wallace really landed up in a lot of trouble because people speculated in land, and land, of course, has um, has its ups and downs, and, 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 um, and Tillman wants to be this land baron uh, because he wants to have that name and prestige that Wallace did, but not necessarily go through what, what Samuel Wallace did. Uh, but uh, you know, they speculated that land in, in anticipation of the timber taking off, but it was a long time before the timber did take off because they didn't have the means to get it where they needed it. <laughs> so the mm, small yep. enterprise people that I relate in the novel who are floating 
uh, timbers down to uh, these these giant pines to what mills they can. Uh, that was a that was an, a unique uh, local economy until the the later days of the big timbering happened up there. Mm-hmm. And with uh, you know, and of course uh, Tillman comes into conflict with Jedediah, and um, kind of sort of jumping forward here. But the sad part of the story, more than anything, and this is something I wanted to ask about in terms of as you were writing this and as you were telling the story, Jedediah, without telling everything, kind of sinks into this haunting of his past and some of the things he may have done and some of the things he said. Um, did that formation uh, come to you as you were putting it together? And I guess the other part of my question is whenever I'm writing myself, I often feel like I'm going through the emotions of the characters, especially the main character. Did you feel that at all with him, with, with what he was battling through? I really did, and and uh, I can relate to exactly what you're saying. Um, uh, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, first of all, I, f- I, I do a lot of background work, an enormous amount of research. Writing is a very slow process for me. I do a lot of planning and thinking through and synopsizing, and I hope that by the time that the composition starts that it's very organic. And so I don't try to control so much what the character does and how he, he acts or reacts or, or uh, degenerates, um, based on things, I, I, I constantly ask myself, you know, what what is the story telling me happens here? What is this character telling me happens? What are the circumstances telling me happens? And so, to me, there was never any question. The whole way to the very end, and, and people have some ambivalence about, um, or some mixed emotions about the ending, but there was never any question about his um, responses to things, his actions, his reactions, and what he did. There was never any question in my mind. Um, and so I, I always de- – that's the only place I really defend is when I say that I, I don't think there was any other, any other um, course for him. And, and so, so the, yeah, and it, um, uh, Brad Barkley was a, was a writing um, um, mentor of mine years ago, and he once said, you know, when you get into a situation, a lot of times just step back and say, what really happened here? You know, when you're writing, you're in a fictional world, but sometimes you don't stop and say – you know, what really happened, a lot of times that will answer the question for you, and that directed the story in many ways. And then one other thing on John Jedediah and, and what happens with that character, um, mm-hmm. a lot of people who have read that story, people I've talked to said, you know, I, I, I got to this one scene and I had to put that book down, and I didn't know if I'd be able to go back to it. And I, 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 mm. I know the scene they mean. I'm pretty confident. I know exactly the scene they mean. And it's a difficult moment in the book, and it's a difficult thing to accept for a character. But to me, it was perfectly appropriate. And, the, and they've all said, oh, ultimately, I did pick the book back up. And looking back, I get it. So that kind of tells me that, you know, whatever the, the, the uh, you know, whatever spirits were with me at the time, it, you know, must have been directing me well. Well, it's it evoked. I think I know the scene too, and I I'll admit I did not have that reaction. But uh, I have had people tell me that I've had people tell me that one or two particular ca- uh, people have told me about scenes I've written where they had to stop and they were just like, "Oh my God!" And I think there was that one person told me they couldn't go back and read, but I think the reasoning was a little different. And I've I thought well, 
I stop. I made, excuse me. I made you stop and think. Well, maybe that is part of my job. <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. I think it's part of our job to, ask, to raise questions. I agree with you. Yes. Well, P.J. Piccarillo is my guest today on the Brown Posey Press Show. He's the author of The Indigo Scarf, available on Brown Posey. And, uh, P.J., I'd like to ask now um, about um, your history. Um, tell us a little about where you where you came from, where you grew up. You, you talk about Pennsylvania being very sort of rather dear to you. Well, uh, tell us about where you're from. Tell us about you. I've always lived in Pennsylvania. I'm very fond of Pennsylvania. Most, you know, um, other than the novels, I've written a lot of short fiction as well. And everything mm-hmm. I've written is either set in Pennsylvania or has some connection to Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I think back, I wrote a story set in Maine, um, but my main character uh, had been from Pennsylvania. There's always that connection because it's just a place that's really important to me. Uh, just, right. yeah, I just love the state. I love, you know, it's a pl- it's a place of, of crisscrossing and, and diversity. Um, and, and so there, it's rich for literature. Um, I've always lived in uh, north, north central, the northwestern Pennsylvania, um, in just mm-hmm. a, a few smaller towns within um, 20, 20 something miles of each other, uh, other than a, a stint in Pittsburgh uh, for some school. Uh, went to grad school in Maine, but that was a low residency program, so I really didn't live up there. Um, well, I was wondering and, about that because you did your MFA at the University of Southern Maine. Yes. And uh, I graduated from St. Joseph's, which was right up the road. Right there, yes. And yeah. uh, and St. Joe's and USM were enemies on the basketball court, among other sports. <laughs> ah, uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I know no, that the, we were uh, we're nemesis in some way this then, but. Uh, Okay. Well, it's, I think it's it's kind of softened a little bit, and and the other thing too is that uh, I have friends who work for USM's community radio station. I've been on a couple of the shows, so it's pretty cool. It was, uh, but no, Portland, Maine. I I mean, I'm from Vermont originally, but I went to school in Maine. I worked radio up there on and off for many many years. I now have family living there, so I was really. I will ask you about that, but uh, do go on. I mean, yes, so Pennsylvania, and you went to uh, St. Francis for your literature degree. So I went to St. Francis. I got a degree in English, and uh, not in, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily in English uh, uh, education um, or anything like that. It's uh, English literature, communications. You know, I took every, um, every humanities and uh, English class I could take. And at the time, um, you know, if you went back to my earliest days of writing, I was – privilege to be able to take one-on-one classes with uh with a at the time he was in his 70s his name was father bede hines so went, and this was down at okay. st francis university in um near evansburg so you know, near in, in the area of altoona pennsylvania and right. uh and he taught one-on-one classes because he was retired and uh was a very active and athletic guy and he was just such an inspiration he was just a great great guy taught me so much about writing that I think back to every day. And he taught expository writing, short story writing, um, play writing, novella writing, novel writing. And so I took every class I could with him as an elective, and I I really enjoyed it. I loved writing, and I loved my literature classes. But but I was very intimidated. Um, You know, I, I I was so inspired to be a writer. I'd sit in a literature class and read just, you know, Milton or... Um, you know the great American 
uh, authors, um, yeah. uh, the great British authors, and just be so moved by their work. And just, you know, so so powerful. You know, like this is what I want to do. But then I would say, there's no way I'd ever be able to do that. And so I was intimidated, and in in, in some ways, um, you know, kind of shirked away from it. So as life goes, I got on a different career path. Um, and um, and 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 I tell students, I, I teach uh, part time in a community college right now, and I tell students all the time, you know, we hear a lot of business about what the major and this and that, and that this is the death of the humanities is here, and um, don't be an English major, but. I can't tell you how many job offers I had as an English major, and I, I would argue that the same is going to happen today because people want people who can communicate. People want people who have an, um, have an understanding of a wide array of uh, uh, transferable skills and things like that. And so I had a lot of opportunities in my life because of an English degree. And, um, and so I, I, went on, I went on this other career path in, in marketing, and I had a, had, a six, had a great job. I mean, a job people would kill for. I got to travel all over the world. But always in the back of my mind was that, was that, you know, what I really wanted to do was write. And so I started to do that in the evening, and, you know, I was you know, writing this really bad stuff and questioning whether or not, you know, but, but at least I was doing it. And so I, I quelled some of that anxiety. And then, and then but my wife, who's, um, if it weren't for her, I, you know, wouldn't have accomplished anything in writing, thing, and, I, and I will always acknowledge her. Even in terms of um, in, in looking at my work, she's very, very helpful. And she's not, she's not a literary person at all. She's, she's a CPA. Um, uh, she knew what I was up to, and she said, if this is what you want to do, why don't you just go do it? And I said, well, quit my job and, and become, a, become a writer. If anybody did a business plan on that, they, they wouldn't get past the first page. And she said, so what? And, and wow. she was serious. You know, whole, and so I said, okay. So – so, you know, I knew it was a big risk, and, and frankly, it, it wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't the sacrifice that you might have thought, you know, because you make things work. And so I did. I quit mm-hmm. my job and went, went to grad school and, um, um, you know, worked part-time as I was in grad school. I worked as much as I mm-hmm. could. And since then, um, I've had every opportunity to do enough work to feed my writing. And, and as I said, I've written a lot of short fiction which, which we don't write for income, you know, as you know. We write that to try to get some prestige and some acknowledgement to, to do other work. And, then, and I became a, um, a rostered resident artist through the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts, which has given me numerous opportunities. I've worked with thousands of students throughout the state doing um, creative writing residencies or interdisciplinary residencies. We've you know, done documentaries and I've uh, worked with visual artists in, 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 in getting students to be accomplished artists. Uh, writers, I should say, um, and uh, so never look back, and um, and and don't miss my days in marketing, and um, and just enjoy doing what I'm doing now. Uh, thanks to thanks to her, uh, wow. you know, saying why not? Well, there's the thing. Um, I face the very same intimidation factor that you did because um, it was one of those things where. You know, I, I would read. You know, I would read Tolkien. I would read, um, you know, different things throughout my life. And and I had some very good teachers in college as well. I didn't major in English, and I kind of wish I had done so now. But I look at it and I think, well, it just took time for me to finally get my own motivation together and to be to be that person. And eventually, yes, you you just get there and you do it. And 
I'm wondering about your MFA experience at USM because I have friends who have done them, and I have I have a, a good friend who's in the process of it right now. How did the program? I mean, the program's probably not for everyone, but what was that MFA like, and what did it do for you? What kind of experience was that? It, it depends upon your goals, and it uh, you know there's a lot of uh, you know I don't know how many people listening are you know writers in in, in a lot, and if you're a writer, you're contemplating an MFA at some point or another because it's the talk of the town, right? Everybody says you know did you get an MFA? Should you get an MFA? And right. um, and I and I and I'll go back to. Um, at the time, she was a director of creative writing program at Penn State, Charlotte Holmes. I was going over yep. there when I'm in, uh, taking every creative writing class I could to try to get my foot in the door to get into their MFA program. Now, that's a residency program. And mm-hmm. I you know, really didn't want to do that because I, I didn't want to be a teacher. And I realized, you know, this is going to help my writing, but it's all about you know, getting, you to, getting you on the academic track, and that's really not what I want. And Charlotte, she knew. She, she, she said she knew what I was up to. And she said, if you get into this program, which is highly competitive, you know, you're going to be on that pedagogy track. She said, um, you know, did you ever think about the low residency programs? Because your goal is the writing, right? And I said, yes. And I didn't know about these low residency programs. Well, here I could work. I had children, young children at the time. I could be with my kids. I wasn't going to be commuting uh, banging yep. my head against the wall to try to get into a, a, a residency program, and and it was perfect because it gave me exposure to, you know, I'm sitting there writing, working with Dennis Lehane and uh, Jack Driscoll and Clint McCowan and Brad Barkley and, and authors, you know, whose work I admire, and mm-hmm. you know, they're they're giving me criticism, they're helping me, they're critiquing my work, we're working, and and so what they'll tell you in a low residency program is that it it speeds that curve. You know, if uh, it, it takes years to become a published author. Anybody, anybody can do it with enough work and, and, and willingness to deal with the rejection because, as you know, mm-hmm. there's, it's constant and enormous amount of rejection. And, yes. um, and, and you know, you'll hear all these numbers, only 5% of, you know, of novels are accepted and this and that. And I tell my students when I teach hearing, don't worry about that. That five percent of the ones who stick with it, you know, you just it may take yep. longer. So I think without an MFA program, it might have taken me, you know, ten years to get the first novel out and get and start getting some serious publications in in, in, in journals. But with the MFA, the exposure, the contacts, the but really the the honesty about my work, that that's the big mm-hmm. thing. You you are forced to be honest with what you're writing. You pull yourself out of your writing. You gain a lot of humility at the same time you gain mm. confidence and and that it takes maybe a 10-year curve to a five or six-year curve to get to get that serious publication you were hoping to get or or just to cre- forget that just to create the quality of work that you would hope to create wow that's very cool um well speaking of residencies now you host some your as well now i've never done one of these so I'm curious about how they function, and is this another role to help speed the curve or bend it a little bit? Do you think? Or? So the residencies are uh, are you know they say about is it three to five percent of um, even novelists make a living writing novels. So we all have to um, do do some other work. And fortunately, I'm able to do work that kind of feeds my work. I'm able to do work that's in the in the creative field and, and to be yeah. be amongst other writers. So the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts um, uh, 
kind of fills fills a void. Uh, the, the schools are doing a great job with art, but as we know, it's not emphasized as much anymore. So they provide mm-hmm. opportunities to bring working artists in to do these residencies. Now, not everything's in a school, and in fact, many of my favorite residencies have been out of schools. They've been in um, um, prisons, they've been in senior centers, mm-hmm. community centers, things like that. Uh, but you bring a working artist in and you engage the population, the students there, um, in that art to experience mm-hmm. art, to see themselves as, as um, accomplished artists or just in accomplishing, uh, producing things creative. And, um, and so uh, you work with various partners throughout the state, and I've been able to do, like I said, uh, 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 going on 20 years I've been doing these residencies, and I'm about to 1,000 students now. And uh, wow. I don't know, I think that gives you the background. Does that answer your question? It sure does. It certainly does. Now, um, in the time we have left, I also wanted to ask about the PA Humanities Council. You also work with them with regards to rural libraries. What kind of projects have you going there? So at one time, the PA Humanities Council uh, had a big emphasis on literacy in the state. And um, mm-hmm. so our area of the state up here is very rural. Um, and uh, so they decided that it would you know, be behoove us to try to get some programs out to get more people to be engaged in in reading, which I was all about that because I, I'm always I'm always trying to get people to think about the better stuff, you know, not only read but read good stuff. Or it's just uh, you know, some maybe that's self-serving or you know, uh, uh, sour grapes or chip on my shoulder, whatever you whatever cliche you want to use. But I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm always I'm all about that. Well, you know, they. They were looking for people to lead discussions in libraries and communities about books. So um, I was able to do that for a number of years, and um, uh, and, and, and they were usually at were thematic, you know, historical fiction or uh, Pennsylvania authors or great literature. And some of them I could kind of compose myself and propose them and was able to do them. But, but what I'm getting at is one of the things that they enabled me to do was become a, a Commonwealth speaker, and I – proposed a program because I've noticed that this part of the world's writers are not recognized as well as they are in other parts of the world. You know, we think of New England writers, we think of Southern writers, we think of Appalachian or Appalachian writers, and mm-hmm. we don't think of here. And so I, I did a program for a few years called The, the Lost Literature of the Alleghenies, where I, I tried to make a case for a canon of literature of this region. And mm-hmm. it's kind of slippery whether the term Allegheny, but that's what I used. In, in, in the, to make a long story short, um, I, I tried to get some maybe universities or other entities involved. It didn't work out, but I never gave up on it, and it has eventually developed into what I and a group of other people who saw the same void have put together as the, as the Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia, Appalachia and also a journal that, um, that I'm an editor of, as well as um, a, a group of other uh, accomplished writers in this region called the Northern Appalachia Review, which is forthcoming uh, this September. So, um, so, I'm a, so I'm an advocate of literature of this region and trying to get the, the lines of this, liter- of this region to be recognized for what they are and to encourage the writers out there who are trying to make a name for writing about who and what we are here. Mm. So it's part of that identity that's um it, it seems like it's a little fleeting to you, but it's there and it 
I, I can see where you're going though. It's like you want to you want to establish their identity and really put it out there more um, because it is there because it, it, it's it's so vital, right? It is, and and there's a there's another part of it. You know, uh, frankly, I you know I speak frankly about this. Um, uh, some people say, well, that's just PJ, but you know, New York. <laughs> There's some things that kind of irk me about the publishing industry. And in, in, in when I've done reading programs around the state, um, I've had so many people say to me, so I, I, I feel this is somewhat scientific. They said, mm-hmm. you know, we do books, and I would choose books from this region, or I would choose books I would consider, you know, finer literature. And they'd say, why are they not giving us more books like this? And mm-hmm. my argument has been that a lot of times they're, they're giving you, they're telling you what you want. Now, I could go on about that, and there may be arguments right. against that. But um, what I want people to do is to realize that there are other choices out there when it comes time to pick up a novel. You know, I had an excellent experience with Sunbury Press, and mm-hmm. probably, um, possibly, uh, the book will do better or reach people in a more meaningful way than if I were to have published with one of these big four or five or how many of them there are now, publishers. Yes, and, um, yes. And, and these presses who are, who are willing to publish this work and, and consider regional work or better writers um, who, you know, aren't, who aren't scared of or afraid of you know, the mid-list and, and are willing to, to produce the good stuff instead of the, the, the subject du jour – they deserve right. a place, and that's what this conference and this, this journal are all about. It's to let's say, you know, there are other choices for you as readers, so when you go to choose a book, you know, I want you to consider these that you never did because you never thought about in Northern Appalachian literature. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and that's the thing, too, is um, the book buyer, and I mean, I think I do it as well, is you sometimes you see I, I I always try to veer away from the things that are really really hot or really mainstream not because they're not good writers and I don't want to judge them just by that but I think well okay that's cool I'm always afraid that reading something really popular is going to kill my own writing or it's going to seep into my style so I'll just look elsewhere I'll look around because like and just see you know sometimes I will do this I do this with music and I'll do this with a book I'll just see something on a shelf and I'll be like, Oh, I don't know who this is. Let's let's try it. And sometimes I get rewarded by reading something really good by someone I've never heard of and I think and it gives me hope. It's like, well, if if this person did it, we can do it and it is right. good because we've put our we've put our effort into it. We've put our heart and soul into it. You know, there's a there's a novel that just comes to my mind. I don't know if you've heard of it. This is more of a western Pennsylvania thing, but it's called Out of This Furnace. It's set in Pittsburgh, and it's a steel mill novel. And it okay. was, you know, one of these books that was completely under the radar. And uh, but people, you know, we started to read it. It was regional, and they're like, hey, and people started to realize this book's really good. It was, you know, wasn't um, was kind of shunned by New York. And mm-hmm. that book has remained in print for. I'd have to look at my copy over there. I'm going to say 40 years now. Um, and and so if people are exposed, my point is that if people are exposed to it, they're going to find it, and it's going to endure. And, um, you know, so so that's kind of my mission, and, and it's somewhat self, self-serving self as well. Well, and what is next for you on this mission as we uh, wrap up here? 
Well, I have a novella that um, I'm finishing up. I've, I've got a draft of it done. Um, cleaning up is a very slow process for me. Um, writing, mm-hmm. um, I admire people who can write a book in a year. I can't do that. It's, you know, a 10,000-page story might take me that long. Um, it's just a very laborious process. And uh, but I've been but this novella is something it's set um, in Pennsylvania. It's set on the Susquehanna, not not up this way. It's set in a, um, a fictionalized, um, uh, let's say, central Susquehanna town, Millersburg, we'll say. And uh, I'm going to pair it with some uh, stories that I've uh, written that have been published in journals. And uh, that's that's what I have forthcoming. I'm hoping to have that done here within a few months and get it out. And then I have a I'm starting to synopsize a, a novel, the next novel in a pipeline. But uh, again, most everything I write is historical, even if that is the 50s, as in the case of the novella or the novel I'm thinking of is the is going to probably be set in the 80s. Okay. Great. Well, listen, PJ Picarello, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My guest has been PJ Picarello, author of The Indigo Scarf, available on Brown Posey Press. I'm Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan, part of the Sweet Dream series, with the upcoming sequel, Call It Love, set for later this year. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. This is the Book Speak Network. Mm-hmm.